Hello and welcome to this week's installment of On Resistance. This is X. We have a guest on today's show. Their name is Rep. Hi. <laughs> and J-Ray. We're excited, yeah, to <laughs> open up the space and have a discussion today. This is J-Ray. Thanks for joining us. So today the show is going to be on queerness and what that means. We wanted to do a queer show, I guess, to start dialoguing, maybe... Do like a round robin of our experiences with queerness and what queerness actually means to us. Okay, I can start off by saying that queerness to me, queer was a an identity, a social category that may have been first externally imposed upon people, but then people reclaimed that and took that name to actually identify with queerness or quote-unquote abnormality of this category and decided to reclaim it and use it as their own term that they call each other. So what once started as a derogative became a term of empowerment. I personally have a lot of experiences and trauma, violence, and in the beginning, shame about my particular queerness and just with how I would relate to people on a social level. It was something that would always pop up. I wasn't always outwardly as queer as I wanted to be growing up and throughout growing up and being around so much machismo, I had to really quiet down my femininity, which is a femininity that I want to actually try to work on reclaiming myself because it's been beaten or socialized out of me since I was a child. I can easily say I've always been a gender nonconformist. I've always felt odd in my skin and not feeling like it was easy to ascribe to these rigid gender roles of man and woman in calling myself a uh, somewhat of a tomboy growing up, if that makes any sort of sense. For me... When I use the term queer for myself, I use it as more of like a politicized term because I don't like any of the other labels that are available right now. (laughs) And also because I don't fall into a lot of the categories, like I'm very fluid when it comes to my gender expression and my identity and also my sexual orientation as well. So to me, queer, I have more ability to kind of just do what I do and not feel boxed in in any way. As far as my queer experience goes, it was really tough for me because ever since I was little, I did feel kind of masculine for being a girl. And it wasn't even until college when I started having a lot of dysphoria and I didn't really understand what was going on. I started joining all the queer clubs that I knew of and working with them, but it was very binary. And a lot of times when I hung out with uh, other female-bodied queer individuals, there was the category of like, you're either the butch or the femme, and I never fell into that. And, and I also didn't understand what it was to be trans, and I didn't understand cis privilege. And so I was very confused when I was starting to figure out my queerness. It's just really interesting because for me, when I think of when I think of the terms we use in the queer community, a lot of the labels to me are very like white centric and about the white experience. So as a person who's trying to reclaim my roots and also decolonize different things in my life, I just I don't know, 
a lot of the queer labels bother me because they are white centric. So I'm still trying to figure out how I identify. So I guess maybe fluid is the best, but I, I don't know because I feel like I'm always trying to battle white supremacy in my queerness. And also, I'm also trying to battle homonormativity because I don't fit in in any way in that homonormativity is very very binary and very capitalist and very ableist and about living that life of being a white assimilationist and as a person of color with a disability and all my identities basically that affects me and I'm trying to figure out how to be queer I don't know well how to be myself as a queer person instead of trying to assimilate or be reactionary in any way just FYI cis Gender means somebody who was born, say, male assigned at birth. They are comfortable with the assignment. So often at times people who are born and they don't agree with that assignment at birth because it's the doctor that pretty much dubs you based on what they're seeing in sight. They name you male or name you female and they determine your gender and your sex. So people who want that self-determination, they often might disagree at times. And those people, they define themselves as transgender um, or it is a term widely known now as transgender or they might identify as gender non-conforming or intersex like we mentioned before or two-spirit or a historical queen or none of those this is jay ray i think my exposure to queerness came first through solidarity with people in my life that were experiencing shame and didn't really have safe spaces to be who they are. And through that, started questioning all the assignments that you're given, the expectations of you to perform a certain role sexually or to have a certain identity. So it took a a while for me to realize that my relationships weren't entirely voluntary. They were very much following this normative script that I'd been given. And when I had relationships with people that were not male assigned or male identified, they were kind of already limited because I wasn't really encouraged to explore what relationships mean, regardless of romantic or sexual affinity. It was very much within a set box. And so it took me until years after to realize that some of the relationships that I'd had with women or non-male identified people, there was no difference. The feelings that I had for the people in my life that weren't gendered or identifying as male were kind of suppressed and limited from even developing because of this framework that had been imposed on me about how I was taught to view social relationships. The environment that I grew up in was very fear-mongered, where you just don't talk about queerness, and if you do talk about it, it's being mocked or belittled. When I was first introduced to anything like that, it was more, yeah, in the normative sense of going to Pride, supporting my friends, and it took me a while to get critical about how I've been scripted to reproduce heteronormativity and how that isn't true to my desires and how that affects my relationships with everybody in my life, including privileges that I have because I have been indoctrinated so well to follow a particular script. I think what's beautiful about queerness is that it's not, it is an identity, but it's also like a declaration. I think that's amazing.
And I'm also trying to look at myself to see how I can explore queerness in a world that is so unequal that there are so many privileges that we exchange on a day-to-day basis. So like how much space you take up in a room or going to queer safe spaces, something that I'm still trying to work out. As someone who does feel queer, but also has been socialized to benefit from heteronormativity, how do I interact with people and find community? Also queer as an as an identity being very relative to anarchism. We've talked a lot about anarchism in the last uh, few weeks and I feel like there's a lot of queers that really flock towards that idea of anarchism because queerness is an antithesis of an actual prescribed identity shaped by normalcy and conformity. So it just so happens that a lot of queer tendencies seem to go towards that abolitionist route, but there still is the uh, assimilationist route, which we're going to touch upon that in a little bit. I just wanted to ask, what does LGBTQIA2S stand for? (laughs) Why is it important for those terms? Is it homogenize people? Is it all-encompassing in terms of... So should we just say what all those letters stand for? I personally don't know because it's know changing so is. fluidly <laughs> yeah. because I think it wants to be an inclusive way to mediate. Just like with the term person of color, it's used to mediate our identities with oppressors and explain like these. this is a group that is marginalized. And so we you know, kind of define our identity that way. And so it's like LGBT, LGBTQ, LGBTQIA. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, I think it's important because some people, instead of using <laughs> people of color, want to choose to use non-white. Right. Because that's more of a of something that is less of an imposed identity and more of something that you identify yourself as instead of it being in contrast to the normalcy of whiteness. So non-straight <laughs> might be a <laughs> yeah. term other people sure. might want to use. But then there's queer, which it was reclaimed. So I mean, I am critical of all those terms imposed on people. But at the same time, I feel they help people find community with other people who have similar experiences. And that's very important, especially in resistance. Mm-hmm. So I guess to answer my own <laughs> question... <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> LGBTQIA2S plus because there's a plus added on because identities are being explored and claimed every single day. So you have lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, intersex, asexual, and two spirit, and then beyond. The last QIA2S are queer, intersex, asexual, two spirit are important to be recognized in because they are also marginalized by heteropatriarchy and share those same social conditions as the, the former LGBT community. They're ones that need a little bit more spotlighting. Those are identities that people don't usually hear about. Now everyone's talking about trans experiences because it's it's spotlighted and it's helpful that it is but you still have a, a percentage of people who are intersex and they have to live through not having the option of choosing mm-hmm. and then two-spirit it's seen as something that is outside of western civilizations ideas of what gender is because it's expressly indigenous so to claim that two-spirit is under a trans umbrella might be offensive to indigenous people because because our language isn't the same language and can't therefore express gender or expression in the same way because there's even though there's two-spirit people there's still two-spirit people who identify as cisgendered or there's two-spirit people who might identify as 
trans. It's important to have agency emancipated from Western ideas of gender expression and for asexual people to live without forcing them to opt into institutions that reward sexual or even romantic relations with social and material benefits. And well, I have nothing to say for Two Spirit because I am not in, like, from that culture or anything. Though I, I do have a friend who identifies as this gender male, and he does also identify as Two Spirit because he's indigenous. Mm-hmm. But I know for me, I find it hard. You know, I consider myself, I guess, non-binary or, or whatever with my gender expression, but I don't know how I feel under the trans umbrella. It seems like another, like, white word being put on me, and I don't know how to go about, I guess, decolonizing that for myself, especially trying to get back to my roots and, like, my indigenous Mexican heritage. And uh, I just don't know the, the language to use for myself sometimes that word gets used for me and sometimes I use trans for myself but I don't really know if that's correct because it doesn't feel right (laughs) but I do have dysphoria and I do want to transition at some point so I don't I don't know (laughs) yeah I've been feeling a lot of dysphoria lately a lot more than I felt when I was a kid when I was a kid I used to fantasize about what it would be like to have a different body And if that would be easier, it wouldn't because, you know, everybody who is femme socialized or socialized to be feminine is pretty much under attack within the global experiences of patriarchy. I think femininity itself is something that is consistently on the rise of being attacked within within this country with the recent killings of, of women, with yeah, women losing their control over their own autonomy over their bodies and the land, the land as something that reproduces materials that are needed to survive. It's all femininity that's being under attack and then you have femininity and what it is constructed to be in contrast to masculinity people often assume that it's supposed to be some sort of overlying acquiescence to masculinity and to to be more masculine is to dominate the feminine and these are ideas that we are socially trying to get rid of in our efforts so i think we're going to segue into talking about assimilation I've been reading some not-so-critical short-sighted analysis on the word assimilation, people actually having an issue with that word and taking the etymology of it and being like, to assimilate means to rid yourself of or assimilate and ascribe into straightness. So I can't possibly be a gay person that's assimilating into straightness because it's not like I'm not going to be gay. But what people mean when they say that they are anti-assimilationist is that they have a very, I'd say, good understanding about power relationships as well as systemic forms of oppression. So when we are critiquing assimilation, I feel it's a critique on acquiring privileges that may cause oppression um, for those who can't acquire those privileges as easy as you can. What do you all think about assimilation i recently heard an interesting critique as well saying that you can't be anti-assimilationist that we're just placed in a position where we're always assimilating and adapting and so i thought i thought that was kind of a little bit dismissive because 
I think assimilation is is a process that we're encouraged to do to escape oppression. So like oppression is taken as absolute. And so instead of fighting and resisting oppression in an oppositional way, you're supposed to adapt to it, take what privileges you can scrape from it and elevate yourself on the backs of other people to kind of get this status where you're less oppressed. And clearly because of the very nature of how oppression and hierarchy is structured, that isn't an accessible, assimilation isn't accessible for everyone. Maybe we are within a process of assimilation, but that doesn't mean we have to be passively going with that process. I look at it because my family immigrated here and I feel like there's a process of assimilation that comes with immigration and with Americanization and colonialism that upholds colonialism. So in whatever regard we're in, if we're assimilating, it's still under that process of colonialism, where we're not able to kind of break from the ideology of whatever that assimilation process is. That's why embracing the word queer, which was a weapon used against queer communities, is so powerful because it's supposed to say something negative, dividing people from an oppressed communities into good queers and bad queers. I think queer is a rejection of that, and it's like, we're just queer, and you might take that as deviant, but deviance from settler colonialism isn't a bad thing. It's a form of resistance. Exactly. (laughs) So queer is resistance to those processes, even if we're housed within them. It's interesting for me because I was raised to be an assimilationist in every way. And it hasn't It hasn't been until a year or two where I started questioning things more, even though I've been organizing for many years, but it was more, you know, liberal assimilationist. (laughs) But now, of course, I'm more radicalized. And so now I can see that and I'm able to break away from it. And I'm surrounded by people who are down with me doing, you know, whatever I want for myself and recognizing my autonomy, which is awesome. But... Yeah, I think it's interesting when I think about that, the fact that I was, you know, trained by my mom and my stepdad to be an assimilationist. And I think that definitely, like, going back to my experience of coming out definitely affected that because I didn't know where I fit in because I don't fit in in a lot of these um, terms that are already existing. But I do appreciate... uh, I feel like these days, especially with... um, social media like tumblr a lot of people are (laughs) creating all these really new interesting labels or talking about their different experiences of queerness that aren't normally talked about or people who are part of marginalized groups within marginalized you know the queer community is already marginalized but there are groups that are really not talked about and so i appreciate tumblr and reddit and sometimes even facebook posts that i read and it's highlighting different experiences and more intersectional experiences. So other people can read that and look at that and understand that they don't have to fit into these boxes that exist under homonormativity. Yeah, I too am a ex or like recovering from liberalism and assimilation in my life. It's almost every single thing that I was raised around as a child, it was to be straight, be God-fearing respect and love your country part of the real problem with those things is that having to assimilate into certain truths that you haven't constructed for yourself or certain beliefs that you haven't constructed for yourself disempowers you from asserting 
your own autonomy and your own self-determination. And that's where the oppression comes from, is that this stagnant, coercive conformity will not allow you to really be empowered to actually love and be who you want to be and people are internally ripping themselves apart by this there's so much unsung collective internalized pains that stem from these kinds of oppression that people are facing and because of all of that trauma that people experience socially there's a lot of psychological issues that that stem from that the suicide rate for lgbtq people are extremely high I wanted to read a little bit from the National Report on Hate Violence Against Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer, and HIV-Affected Communities that was released on May 29th of this year. It's a few bullet points, and maybe we can discuss what people feel about these these facts because they're really startling. So almost, almost three-quarters, 72% of homicide victims were transgendered women, and more than two-thirds, 67% of homicide victims were transgendered women of color. Yet transgender survivors and victims only represent 13% of total reports by this study. In 2013, 27.78% of homicide victims were men, all of whom identified as gay. And the most impacted communities were some of the undocumented survivors uh, with 3.5 times more likely to experience physical violence and two times more likely to experience injury as a result of hate violence and 1.7 times more likely to require medical attention. Transgender survivors were 1.4 times more likely to experience threats of intimidation. This is heteropatriarchy. This is what we're living under. What do people feel about these statistics or how currently as people celebrate being proud of being who you are, but maybe not being aware of the violence that people are still facing? I think for me, it's... It's always incredibly disheartening to look at the statistics for trans women of color because they've done so much for the queer community. Consistently, homonormativity turns its back on trans women of color. Without Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, where would we be, you know? Yeah, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, they house a lot of people who were either attacked by this homophobic or transphobic violence or who were facing this violence in their everyday lives. Even in Los Angeles, we have particular threats of of spaces that are unsafe, um, that people are currently calling out for being unsafe, like this, this space on 7th East. It's across the street from um, the Greyhound station. There's this kind of communique that's been circulating around the internet of people are calling out this space because of homophobic and transphobic violence. People are very triggered by the things that have happened to trans women. Just a few weeks ago, we lost another queer to this kind of violence. Rep is going to read a, a statement or part of the, the communique from this statement from people who are organizing against this kind of violence. Rep. Okay, so it says... This statement has been crafted in regards to the gender and racial violence 
inflicted on members of our community, family members, and potential comrades interested in creating better communities and safer spaces. The space we are spotlighting that has compromised the safety of queer, gender nonconforming, trans-identifying folks, as well as black peoples, or even those willing to call out oppressive dynamics when they occur, is 7th East and its resident group known as Aborto Social. We cannot stand idly by when some of our family members are being called racist or homophobic slurs while being bullied, robbed, gay bashed, and or harassed by members of said group. We will treat this racist, heterosexist, homophobic, transphobic violence as a threat to the building of revolution and the safety of our loved ones. We are, seriously, we are serious about transgressing all the old ways we relate to one another and will not tolerate these tendencies on par with fascist beliefs of dehumanization. This violence and these actions brought about by the residents of this space have been proven time and time again to serve ideals relative to the violent social hierarchies protected and perpetuated by the police, Nazis, and other racist, sexist, homophobic, ableist, separatist groups. Well, you can check out more of that statement on our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a trend in most movements, but since we're talking about kind of pride and the corporatization of gayness, there's an emphasis on celebrating a past that ends up becoming vague. We don't really know the history of what was happening and who played a key role and who was excluded and dismissed so that the gay rights movement would have a certain image to appeal to a particular line of getting privileges under the nation state of occupied America. There's an emphasis on celebrating, being positive, being grateful. This is how we name success. Instead of looking at the violence and and the struggle that was waged and understanding that celebrating that isn't effective for now. How does celebrating inclusion in the military do anything to stop real-time violence, especially in such a toxic society to live in right now? I don't think people should not celebrate the small happinesses that we can find, but I think wrapping an entire struggle and saying that this is just now something we celebrate, this is not something that we do critical work. If Pride was a bunch of collectives and a bunch of people coming together to open up space to share resources for the most marginalized in the queer community, that'd be a totally different thing because at least that'd be open space where people could go to and say, hey, the solutions aren't enough, those military solutions, you know, this inclusion under heteropatriarchy, this homonormativity, this corporate culture, you know, this isn't enough. But Pride isn't an open space. These spaces aren't open. They're literally dominated by major institutions that have their foot in the door before any marginalized, queer, trans, you know, houseless youth is going to get a ticket to go to Pride. So I just think that there's this emphasis, because things are so terrible, to just be grateful for the sacrifices of the past. You see this with voting, too. Because people sacrifice for our right to vote, we're supposed to be grateful for the vote instead of critical on whether it's an effective means of participation or mediating any of our struggles. Or whether it was just another privilege kind of doled out to give us some sort of status in the hierarchy, but never to actually fundamentally give us any power to challenge or transform the structures of our oppression. We're given a privilege under the structure, and we're told to celebrate and be grateful for that, but we can't go further and challenge the actual structure itself. And I think just the word liberation it has been kind of swept aside with a lot of the great contributions from trans women of color that have also been erased. Pride or liberation, maybe? Yeah, there's a lot of critiques going around about pride right now. 
especially the critique regarding San Francisco Pride this year, and they're having a, mm. a prison-themed party. What do people think about that? Infuriating. Yeah, it is infuriating. <laughs> Sexy prison party. Right. Like, and it, it upsets me because I've been to a party before. It, for trans masculine individuals that also had a sexy theme prison mm-hmm. party. I was really upset and shame on <laughs> original plumbing for throwing that party, honestly. Word and gay shame on the <laughs> the people who are organizing this in San Francisco. It's There was a really, really great critique of it actually written by this year's Grand Marshal. We will post it on our info drop. Like people were saying, some of the most marginalized or people who face the most violence within the LGBTQIA to S plus community are are not really being heard and they're just being swept aside. It's kind of a shame that these issues are still not being focused on and it's just very party centric and it's very individualistic and then aspiring to be what you see in these absolute commercials or what you see in these you know military commercials most of us have participated in some capacity with Los Angeles queer resistance and you know we write zines and we go to schools and we teach at schools and just talk about a lot of things from gender violence to consent to trans feminist revolt we were invited to pride last year and we were actually invited by one magazine and they wanted us to be part of pride because pride asked them to be part of it and we were just like why would Pride want LAQR who has critiqued you know in our writings have already critiqued pride before and We realized that since they denounced Chelsea Manning and called her a war criminal, that they might be trying to manage the dissent that might be placed upon Pride. So when we were invited, it seemed like it was a tactic to invite us, but throw us again in the corner and just be like, you be radical over there. And it was really disgusting because the first thing I saw, uh, a sheriff sign-up booth and then a military sign-up booth. And it's like, really, the police (laughs) are responsible for so much of the oppression that our community faces and they're here openly just signing people up. It's really messed up that you have more gay, cis, white men willing to put on cuffs and talk about partying in the styles of a prison theme than you have them actually organizing against prison as an industry that continues to perpetuate so much violence and oppress so many of our communities. So yeah, there's a lot of criticisms going around online. All you have to do is type in hashtag not proud. That was created by uh, Dark Matter and they have a lot of critiques on assimilation as well as pride as it is. I just wanted to talk a little bit more on heteronormativity and how it is helping to negotiate patriarchal capitalist modes of production. You have the nuclear family setting and how marriage kind of shaped and paved the way for oppression of, well, marriage as an inherently anti-Black institution as well as an inherently anti-gay and exceptionally subjugating to women and children. And now you have people just opting into these inherently historically or historically oppressive institutions. Like Audre Lorde said, I don't think it's fair to ascribe to single issues because we don't live single issue lives. We don't have single identities. Why would we expect people to live that way politically? Y'all better quiet down. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. 
I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? What the f*** wrong with you all? Think about that. I do not believe in a revolution, but you all do. I believe in the gay power. I believe in us getting our rights, or else I would not be out there fighting for our rights. That's all I wanted to say to your people. If you all want to know about the people that are in jail, and do not forget Bambi Lamore, and Dora Marks, Kenny Messner, and other gay people that are in jail, the people that are trying to do something for all of us and not men and women that belong to a white middle class, white club. And that's what you all belong to. Revolution now! That was Sylvia Rivera giving a speech in 1973. And the following reading is in response to Pride and then also the prison party. This is a description. It's called Just Stop, Anti-Pride Performance Night. This is a space for dissent, despair, betrayal, shame, anger, disgust, and resistance. We are not proud, hashtag, of the corporate neoliberal wet dream marketed to the white cishet masses as a movement, quote unquote. We are hashtag not proud of hashtag equality, hashtag macalist, hashtag gay assimilation into U.S. empire. We are not proud of the whitewashing, the pinkwashing, the wealthwashing, the erasure and perpetual tyranny of violence against queer and trans people of color and our revolutionary history and dreams. Just stop and give us back our movement. Mm, word. Yeah, that's Dark Matter. They're really a great, awesome duo. Pinkwashing. Who has an understanding of what pinkwashing might be or is? Isn't that when you, like, focus on one thing that could be positive, but then other things not being addressed? Right. Like, um, like, okay, we have inclusion into the military, but the military, when occupying other countries brutally murders and particularly oppresses like gender nonconforming queer people or supports regimes that actively brutalize and murder or imprison um, queer or trans activists. And then you focus on that one benefit at the expense of like everything that is being done with that institution. And now actually I think institutions will say they have more legitimacy the more inclusive they are to oppress groups. So the LAPD now has like an LGBTQIA police union. But are they are they stopping, you know, arresting all these people of color and trans women and like brutalizing them? No. For being who they are? No. Right? no, no. <laughs> so equality just means if you can wield a gun and wield violence like the white cis man. Yeah, against your now, own people. Against your own people. Then you'll be included yeah. into the homonormative, heteronormative mass yeah, that's what I don't get about this push for equality. Instead of trying to strive for an equal playing field within these social hierarchical frameworks, why don't we start celebrating our differences? Why don't we start recognizing and acknowledging our differences instead of be uniform? Yeah, because I didn't help create this power structure and I don't like it. So I don't want to ha- be whatever it is equal under this. Mm-hmm. I want something totally different. I do not consent to this power structure that is imposed upon me and so many people I know. Why is that so difficult for people to understand? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I do not consent. Yeah. There we go. 
I mean, yeah, it's kind of interesting because when we do go to talk to classes, um, we extend the consent dialogue that we usually talk about to not only consent on sexual, you know, frameworks because not everybody is sexual or everybody wants to be sexual, but we also extend it to how you're living politically. Do you consent to live in this particular economic system that you're living under, like capitalism? Do you consent to the police having so much power over your bodies? No, you're, you don't. They didn't ask you. They're not mm-hmm. asking me or anybody. It's just kind of there to maintain the control that they want over our bodies. In regard to the pinkwashing uh, question, wh- how people frame it to be homo-nationalism, and it's using the language of inclusivity, like you were saying, to pink wash over ways in which people are trying to actually live. So like they're they're kind of forcing an entire group of already subjugated people to ascribe to the institutions that they are presenting to people when in fact those institutions are doing nothing to include or recognize Palestinian people as human or even queer trans other people, other groups as human and create their own self-determination. They're just trying to impose these kind of ideas to maintain a global neoliberal capitalist agenda and power over people. It's all relative to profit and who maintains that profit maintains the control and who maintains that control maintains that power. So yeah, I think that instead of aspiring to be at the top of these social hierarchies, people should reject what is that at the top of those social hierarchies yeah. there's to never gonna be day i'm gonna wake up and be like be white a cis het white male <laughs> with a like able-bodied individual like it's just not gonna happen <laughs> a lot of the fear of people who currently benefit and maintain control of the power structure is oh the resistance is gonna come and invert the power structure so now they're gonna be at the bottom and like yeah. at the top will be a completely different mm. visual it's that constant fear that i think has people holding on so hard to their privileges we're seeing resulting in violence and mass shootings because people's entitlement is being challenged it's also causing people forced to identify with their oppressor and so to avoid oppression like i just need more money or to live in a better area or to have some sort of class status that will then insulate me from feeling the brunt of this oppression but that doesn't solve it you know you're just like ignoring that like working class people of color or like houseless people of color are gonna experience the brunt of all this trauma and then the class privilege is just distancing yourself from that trauma and it's this idea that like capitalism presents to people that you can buy your way out of certain conditions or identities um, and I think that's a lot about what pride is. Pride is like, mm. you know, celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. Individualist consumption will kind of like create community for you. And if West Hollywood was radicalized, like <laughs> as an area who put themselves forward as having a friendly police force, friendly to... Um, how is that even possible? I don't even know It's not. Works. Like, I don't know why I said that phrase, because <laughs> it's not possible. Friendly police. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I feel that, that area particularly... I went to Pride, I think, um, once, like four or five years ago. And it's on lock. They've got security in Mm -hmm. the entrance, in the exit, the actual march. I haven't been in the march in L.A., but I was at the march in Long Beach. And they have march marshals, but it's like working with the city and the police. It's not even trying to be an activist thing. And they're all in order, like the MLK parade, too. Like most of these mass movement Mm. type, like recognition and commemorating these struggles is staged. 
this is symbolic. So what are you hiding if you only want symbolism to represent your movement? People don't remember or know the actual historical roots of where pride came from. You know, it came from a police riot. It came from people daring to be themselves in bars, in the streets, and the police coming in and attacking them and them fighting back. Them actually physically fighting back against the police because the police were uphold, trying to maintain the status that homosexuality and dressing in drag and being a quote-unquote queen was relegated to some sort of mental health issue. And the FBI was actually looking into a lot of yes. people that were pushing queer propaganda and were pushing for solidarity with marginalized voices. And that is the history. And furthermore, pride as something that was created from these riots to symbolize not being afraid and being as open as you want to be and celebrating your queerness, but also pushing for some sort of resistance against this heteronormativity that is being militantly opposed upon you. It wasn't Stonewall that actually was the first uprising against this brutality that people were facing against uh, the police and their, their violence. I just wanted to relate when it comes to gender, questions of gender and ability, I find that these kind of oppressions are relatively similar in that what seem as outside of its norm or deviant to the larger society or abnormal is is oppressed. And you have people who are socialized to be men or who might be male assigned at birth or even identify as, as men. And for the greater society to see them as a little bit feminine, that, that might be bring about some some marginalization in the form of physical violence like we've seen with so many gay or uh, femme boys that have been attacked and i think it's interesting i kind of am maybe quoting a uh, judith butler kind of analogy in terms of uh, relating this to disability but i think it's interesting that people are attacked by the way that they move literally people are attacked people are dehumanized by the way that they move as well. What are how y'all? Um, it's interesting. I've read articles that pretty much talk about this topic of movement and gender identity and gender expression and disability. There, I forget his name, but uh, he's a black columnist, and I was writing, uh, reading his article, and he was talking about the fact that he's in a wheelchair and he's femme. He basically can't move certain ways that are. I guess, associated with femininity. He, he can't be as feminine, I guess, outwardly or considered as feminine as he would like to be because of his disability and his ability to move in certain ways or not move in certain ways. So I thought that was interesting because I had never thought of that before, but I, <laughs> as a person who's also physically disabled, it made me think a lot about um, my gender expression and identity and the way that I move as well. So I think that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. I know you played that Judith Butler yes. a segment once at a class. Yeah. Maybe we can also link to that article. The expectation enforced by violence to adhere to gender assignment is so great that any type of deviance from that is kind of looked at as 
as like a broken expression of masculinity. I feel like that's a lot of what happens to oppression against people with disabilities is it's looked at, um, it's a societally imposed, society is broken and how it withdraws resources and accessibility to people. There's so many, so many black, queer, trans people, usually women identified people who have created such really amazing analysis on subjects like these, which is why you have really amazing radical groups that have created programs that often may have ignored the plight of women or queer trans people of color in the past, like the Black Panthers, but have tried opening up that space to see that there are people that are struggling. You had Huey P. Newton's kind of essay that he wrote on how some of the most revolutionary people that exist within the struggle are the queens and the queer trans people of color that are fighting in the streets that are creating spaces so that people can take care of one another like the efforts of sylvia rivera and marcia p johnson um creating spaces for houseless trans youth to to live and able to maintain spaces like that I guess in closing, I just want to say I think it's important that people out there continue to be themselves regardless of what society tells them are striving for liberation from a world that deems them as not human and that you're not alone in this struggle. Because often at times when you grow up and it's all surrounded by this heteronormativity and no one wants to talk about queerness or gayness or lesbianness, you do feel absolutely alone and you, you're it's sad that you think that no one else in the world is like how you are. Just trying to send that out through the airwaves that there are. There are definitely people out there. I guess this is us signing off. Check out hashtag not proud. Um, check out us on resistanceradio.tumblr.com. And also our SoundCloud is soundcloud.com slash on dash resistance. You can check out the full hour of this show there. (laughs) (laughs) Love and Queer Rage. Bye.